I'm Bill Crystal. Welcome back to Conversations. Our guest today is Harvey Mansfield, longtime professor of political philosophy at Harvard and my teacher. I'm thrilled to have him with us today. Mm. Harvey, why political philosophy? You've been teaching it for 50 years, but I think you started off intending to be a political scientist. Well, that's true. I went from political science to political philosophy at Harvard. Uh, as you mentioned, I went to Harvard. And I went to Harvard in a more significant way than most people because I never left Harvard. All the jokes about Harvard are about what happens to you after you leave Harvard. For example, um, you'll never regret going to Harvard. Others may, but you won't. <laughs> so uh, I learned it there because I've always been there. And uh, I started uh, with this wonderful teacher, Sam Beer, who was a professor of comparative government. We studied especially political parties. And that was political science, which had a certain relationship to what was called political theory. Uh, they thought that um, because Sam Beer was with others like him, that um, political science needed theoretical background or backing up or foundation underneath it. And the foundation that he went to, and others too at that time, was Max Weber. So when I was an undergraduate, as a senior, I wrote a, a senior thesis on political parties and Max Weber as backed up. Uh, but uh, while I was doing so, I began to wonder. I was even turning to Hegel uh, but when, at the same time that I was reading uh, Max Weber. And uh, I concluded that political science was not enough by itself because it doesn't judge. So when you study facts, facts uh, uh, ask to be judged. Uh, a fact presents itself as something which is either good or bad, or, and people who deal with facts either deserve to be praised or blamed. It doesn't seem really possible to stop and say, I'm not going to be concerned with evaluation. Political philosophy is concerned with evaluation because political facts aren't sufficient by themselves, and they ask to be judged. And you came to this view on your own or influenced not by other exactly. teachers? Not exactly. No, certainly not. Uh, unhappy with uh, yeah, Weber? Uh, or, uh, well, a little bit of all that, but uh, I especially came under the influence of Leo Strauss, uh, the famous, uh, more than famous uh, philosopher at uh, the University of Chicago, where I did not go, uh, but uh, heard about and learned from through his students, especially Harry Jaffa at Ohio State, and a couple of them who taught at Harvard, Richard Cox and David Lowenthal, were good friends of mine. And Leo Strauss, uh, I think, presented political philosophy in a much more attractive way and profound way than I had ever seen before. It went beyond just theory in the sense of generalizing, but it uh, looked toward uh, the most fundamental premises and connected those to the most obvious and superficial facts. So it was empirical beginning from the surface of things in a way that I'd never appreciated before. So I read uh, Leo Strauss's book, Natural Right and <coughs> History, about the time that I graduated. That, that book came out in 1953. 
and uh, I was completely, completely uh, overthrown in all my previous uh, thoughts and uh, had to sit down and revise and think again. This was uh, after your senior yeah, thesis. That so was you didn't after have to revise your senior no, thesis. No, no, <laughs> I, I, I now leave it on my shelf, uh, never to be looked at again. But it's uh, not worth the paper that it's written on. But maybe the experience was sure. was worth it. And after that, I went into the army. I had plenty of time to think. <laughs> Those were two years that I spent away from Harvard. Right, but but with time to read. With time to read, yes. So I was not. Uh, in a very, um, I was not in an emergency situation. Where were you actually? Yeah, I, I spent my time in Williamsburg, Virginia, and in Orleans, France. It's nice. What the Army calls good duty. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then you came back to graduate school, and at that point you were yeah. determined to study political philosophy. I was, yes. Yeah. And you turned to Burke, I guess. Edmund that Burke. was the subject of your PhD thesis. It was. So why Burke? Um, uh, Burke wrote on parties. Um, I wanted to judge parties, and other people had studied the facts about parties and generalizations about parties, but they hadn't defended parties. Uh, and in fact, before Burke, a party was always thought to be faction. It was thought to be uh, a bad thing for a republic to suffer from party divisions. Was it? Um, meant that the common good was not understood. It was disputed, and this wasn't good. Uh, Burke changed that with a small writing of his called Thoughts on the Cause of the Present Discontents. It came out in 1770. And so I made a study of that in my dissertation, which I called uh, Party Government and Statesmanship. Then when it came out as a book, switched it around which changed everything from, to statesmanship and party government. That was your decision or that the was, publisher? Or? That was my decision, yeah. It was a fundamental rethinking. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And statesmanship is uh, understanding things uh, on the spot, individually, and the, a wise man making the wisest decision in those circumstances. And party government deals with politics as it more usually can be found, um, which is disputes, not being sure what the wisest decision is or even what the wisest person is. And Burke, who was certainly a wise man and who made many wise decisions, nonetheless uh, supported a, a way of, of carrying on politics through party government, which uh, legitimized, regularized, made permanent. Uh, divisions, party divisions, that before him were always thought to be temporary or hoped to be temporary. And, and what, yeah, so yeah. the paradox, I guess, is a statesman yeah. defending party government. That's 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 just what uh, that's what he did. Yeah. And what? And so why why not give full reign to statesmanship? Why confine things into these parties, which are then partisan and yeah. partial and all that? And based on principle, that was. Burke's new notion that uh, a party was a group of men gathered together based on or acting together on the basis of some principle. And you might criticize that from the standpoint of statesmanship as by saying that uh, you know, principles are uh, 
generalizations that don't always work. You can't always uh, practice your principles because events come, emergencies arise, which prevent you from doing that. So um, uh, principle is uh, uh, a, a, always a problem. And I think Burke agreed with that, but he thought that it was better to have principle than a series of uh, wise decisions, each of them defensible on its own, but perhaps not uh, coherent altogether. Because <coughs> most uh, wise men uh, can't, don't have the power to act on the basis of their wisdom. They have to persuade other people who are not so wise. And one way of doing this is to take what is wisdom and uh, try to transform it into principles. So, uh, for example, we have uh, w wisdom, what is wise for America to do, but we also have a principle which is the right of consent. And sometimes the right of consent gets you into trouble, it's very inconvenient, but still, on the whole, we stick to that principle even though it doesn't always bring wisdom, at least not immediately. So that would be an example of, uh, of the way in which uh, <coughs> parties, based on principle, are wiser than wisdom not based on principle. And I think your argument was that Burke really founded party government, I mean, consciously, yes. right? I mean, that it yes. wasn't just something that grew up yeah. accidentally as democracy emerged or whatever. No, that's right. It was not, uh, it didn't just emerge from politics or political science. It was something that he saw what was going on politically, which was uh, the king choosing people on, on the basis of his own, quote, wisdom, unquote, or his own right to, you know, as king, to choose his ministers. and. Uh, he would choose according to, uh, or at least he was offered the, the, the choice of uh, choosing according to merit. And Burke thought that merit wasn't always the best thing. So, uh, you need to have merit, but also a certain amount of loyalty and a certain amount of refinement. Uh, and so he defended a, a government, that, a free government, which was mainly run by gentlemen. But it was possible for gentlemen not always to agree, to have different principles. So it could be respectable to have party differences among respectable people. And that's today what we have. It's not that uh, the, the party dispute is between uh, the nobles, the respectable people, and the plebs, say the, the ignorant mob, but we have uh, two parties, both of which are equally respectable. Ha ha. Right. So that's party government. Yeah. Right. So you really got into, I mean, that's not the right way to say it, but you, you came to political philosophy really from the study of politics. I mean, I think that's not always been the case. A lot of political philosophy professors are interested at a young age and whatever, and, yeah. and the thinkers themselves are that's right. and charmed they, by the thinkers. And, and by theories. And, right. And especially by the theory behind democracy. You, you they, they think that what democracy needs is theories which promote democracy. And that's what most political theory is, I'm sorry to say, in our profession these days. Quote, democratic theory, unquote. Right. 
But maybe even democracy needs uh, to be made respectable or needs to be thought out a little bit more than they do. Democracy might have weaknesses, which would show up against uh, uh, an understanding of politics which took wisdom or statesmanship more seriously. And um, so democracy needs to address its weaknesses and not just to promote its theory and say in the case of democracy, which is about equality, tr to try to make all human life as equal as possible. I can see why you became so interested in Tocqueville, so maybe we should yeah. jump to that since we're talking about democracy okay, yes, and, its, and its weaknesses. But had you always, I'm just curious, been a bit of a skeptic about the sort of excessive glorification of democracy? Were you a, a sort of a slightly conservative with a little c, even as a well, uh, politically, I was liberal. I, I, my, my parents were New Deal liberals. My father was a political scientist with the same name as mine and uh, gave me his name. Thank you. <laughs> and um, and so, uh, that was what I had uh, at home and, of course, uh, growing up among professors as I did, uh, a university brat, uh, that's what I heard. But, uh, yes, I began to develop uh, doubts and um, finally changed to becoming conservative uh, after I graduated from college. Uh, and uh, Coincidentally with reading Leo Strauss's book, but uh, since Strauss doesn't really promote conservatism, uh, I think with a, with a view from above conservatism that is generally favorable to conservatism. So, <laughs> that's this. Uh, that's that's a few point of wisdom. It's kind of pretentious, maybe, to speak of wisdom, but uh, it, it, it's 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 a it's a kind of pretension that uh, opens up n new ways of looking at things. And uh, so, to suppose, say, that uh, conservatism is always correct, and that liberalism has nothing to say, that would go against what I was thinking about party government, but also uh, against what I think is true. So I, be, I became a conservative mostly on the anti-communist issue. Right. And then uh, uh, turned to sort of more domestic uh, And the 60s, did you on. react against the 60s as uh, so many people yes, did? Yes, did I ever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, that made me much more conservative in every respect, uh, especially so-called social conservatism because the 60s, the 60s was not so much an attack, the late 60s, not so much an attack on conservatives, it was an attack on liberals. The liberals that I'd known and worked with, people like Sam Beer, he recognized this and uh, also defended uh, Harvard as well as he could from uh, in invasions of the new left. But, um, yeah, that, so that, that, was, uh, that was a difficult time for us, and what what it, what happened was that the liberals that I knew always had underneath a certain conservatism that they took for granted and weren't fully aware of. This was only tr also true even of my own dad, and uh, so the late '60s brought that out a little bit. And this is, this is one reason why the late '60s not only gave birth to the new left but also to conservatism. And I remember in your book, The Spirit of Liberalism, which came out in the late 70s, was a 
yeah. analysis of various liberals who were unwilling to fight for liberalism, right. really, or the weakness, or showed That's the weakness right. of That's right. contemporary liberalism. Yeah. They were uh, lacking in manliness. This was, this is another theme. To get to another one another of my themes. themes yeah. Another one of my themes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know which one to go yes, to next. Well, you know, there's so many <laughs> possibilities. Well, yeah. maybe we should go next to Tocqueville. Right? Yeah, our, let's our do that. So how did you, I mean, I'd say you're famous for your work on Burke, your work on Machiavelli, you taught the history of political philosophy at Harvard. I took that class, Plato to Nietzsche. I think Tocqueville is, maybe someone would look and say, surprised that yeah. you spent so much time uh, translating Tocqueville and yes. writing about Tocqueville at, at considerable length. Yeah. Um, why Tocqueville? Is he a political philosopher and not just a kind of sociologist who observed America? Yes, I think he is a political philosopher. He's a political philosopher in a time when he thought that philosophy was doing damage uh, politically and socially, that philosophy was more hurtful to democracy than helpful. And this was because philosophy was mainly materialist philosophy. Uh, he was a great opponent of materialism, mostly on political grounds, Tocqueville. Uh, he thought that the, one of the weaknesses of democracy, I spoke earlier of weaknesses, and this one of them is uh, uh, the taste for material well-being. Most people who are Democrats, uh, uh, they're Democrats because they don't believe that anyone else is superior to them. So there's, they, they don't have any authority that they look up to. So they uh, look to themselves, but there's nothing there. So uh, they look around and they see what everybody else is doing. They become conformists. But they also become, uh, um, they, they endow themselves with a need for some immediate pleasures that, because they, or the ones off in the long term, they don't see or don't appreciate. It seems that you need to have some kind of authority or believe in some higher power, religion, God, or, so, or, or the good, uh, to gear yourself towards what is in the future as opposed to right here. So right here means materialism and material pleasures because those are immediate. Everybody can feel them. They're very democratic. But they hurt democracy. And it's, it's partly because uh, they make uh, us into uh, people of no interest and of uh, no ambition with uh, nothing on their minds except uh, more and more of what they already have, which they don't appreciate because they don't take time to enjoy. And they don't do that because they don't know what they would do with that time to enjoy. They have no sense of leisure. So this is uh, the taste for material pleasures which does so much harm and which um, will it's bad for democracy because it makes them unwilling to defend democracy. They don't have the same kind of spiritedness and sort of martial temper needed at crucial times. And they don't have the desire or interest in greatness, which is what dignifies man, according to Tocqueville. But Tocqueville somehow 
doesn't present this argument directly. He doesn't lecture democracy. That's right. He does it in the that's right. He does course it. of describing he do, he's, America. Yes, that's a good example of political science that is uh, sort of brimming with uh, potential political philosophy. And he left it at that because philosophy had been taken over by materialist philosophy. And so to appeal to his audience as uh, being interested in philosophy uh, wouldn't have worked, have been successful, it would have seemed uh, undemocratic and condescending. And so he, sh he shows, and, but, but I think this was still a philosophical decision on his part and uh, based on his philosophical interest in the whole. He throughout his book, his great book, Democracy in America, contrasts democracy with aristocracy. And you become much more aware of what dem democracy is when you see it in contrast to what it isn't or, and, which, which, and which he supposes more or less, uh, more or less factually uh, to have been the case uh, in the times before democracy in the Middle Ages or the ancients. Or, uh, and aristocracy had its great defects too, but still uh, it uh, had its concern for greatness. And this is uh, what you see in, um, if, if you can make that comparison. And what you don't see if you're merely a Democrat, looking at everything democratically and uh, n not understanding that there is this whole other half to human nature and human experience. He presents that other half as sort of not practical in the modern world. That's you can't right. be an aristocrat. It always yes. it yeah. seems to be part of the charm of studying political philosophy when I took it with you. Was <laughs> you're exposed to these alternatives that are yeah. politically incorrect, to say the least, and yeah. challenging and eye-opening, whether it's Plato or Nietzsche or whatever. And Tocqueville seems to, I mean, in this respect, cut a little bit against that, um, the charm and you know, awakening character of political philosophy by saying, well, we're, we're all living at a democratic horizon. So, I mean, you think that's, was that a yes, you would reasonable have to, decision of him yeah, to make? Yes, I mean, uh, well, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that is a good uh, criticism of Tocqueville, that uh, yes, you wouldn't go into philosophy after you read him. Uh, but if you read him really carefully as a philosopher would, or somebody who's interested in philosophy would, you would see that he does mention uh, 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 names like Pascal, uh, Socrates. Socrates, Plato, yes, he criticizes them, but you might wonder, hmm, can it really be as, uh, as ignorant as Tocqueville seems to say? No. You look it up, and you'll also see that, uh, or if you read his letters, you saw that he was interested in philosophy and went through a period of sort of religious or anti-religious uh, awakening as, a, as an adolescent. I read books of materialism, obviously re reacting against them as much uh, as in their favor. But uh, yeah, um, uh, philosophy is not a theme, but it's present. So you do need to read other people besides uh, Tocqueville. You, you need to read the other liberals that he was uh, competing against. He was competing against Hobbes and Locke, who were in their different ways uh, kinds of materialism, promoted kinds of materialism, but, um, uh, and, and, and who did this on the basis of uh, a notion that all of us begin equal uh, at the beginning. 
and this is a situation that they call the state of nature. So their liberalism was a kind of philosophical consequence of, political consequence of this philosophical beginning, saying that human beings are all by themselves in a state of nature, whereas Hobbes said, you know, nasty, poor, solitary, nasty, poor, brutish, and short. Um, so they had these very bad beginnings. And it's a pre-social, pre-political beginning. But Tocqueville said, no, you must begin with politics as it is, and not as uh, theorists imagine it to be. Still, uh, all the time that you're reading Democracy in America, if you become aware of Hobbes and Locke, you can see that Tocqueville is arguing against them and against their premises, and uh, is a approaching, I would say, a kind of Aristotle for our time. With this big difference you know, that you point out, namely that Aristotle always made you know that philosophy was the best way of life and the most superior knowledge, whereas Tocqueville keeps that covered over. Why is that? To be an Aristotelian these days, you mustn't refer directly to Aristotle. And, uh, so you think Aristotle might have approved of Tocqueville? He might have, he might have approved of that. Uh, he had uh, his own master to deal with, namely Plato. Right. And uh, he much more criticizes Plato than I think uh, is necessary for him to do. And this, too, is perhaps a kind of stance on Aristotle's part to show that um, Plato had this failing, or maybe it isn't altogether a failing, of... Uh, giving too low a view of politics. So politics deserves, uh, has a certain nobility to it. In fact, a terrific nobility to it. And uh, so Aristotle wanted to bring to our attention the, the splendor of, of, uh, of politics and of the moral virtue that people show in politics. And he thought that Plato had not done this sufficiently, and so uh, on every page, so to speak, there's a kind of uh, um, critique of Plato and in uh, Aristotle's ethics, there's a, an actual statement of disagreement with his revered teacher, uh, which he says uh, that he loves his friend, but he loves the truth more. It's the most beautiful kind of criticism you could get or give. You've gone from Tocqueville to Aristotle, and I guess people would say that's characteristic of your own thought and of students of Leo Strauss, who always want to go back to the classics, to the ancients. What, why, why, why the ancients? Why, why these 2,000-plus-year-old thinkers? Why are they so important to understanding uh, our situation and uh, yes, politics in it, general? I mean, you see Burke and Tocqueville seem pretty impressive. Why do we have to go back to Aristotle? Well, uh, well <laughs> uh, I think we do. Uh, yeah, that is certainly characteristic of any follower of Strauss as I am. So, um, because what Strauss mainly did, uh, at least in his more political work, was to reintroduce the relevance and importance of the, of the ancients. Let's go back to uh, political science. Political science which doesn't judge, which thinks that you can state the facts without judging them. Uh, so that's the fact-value, the famous fact-value fact value distinction. distinction. Right. Yeah. Now, that, 
that is really modern political science because it comes out of modern political philosophy. Modern political philosophy tried to begin with a set of facts, something like the state of nature would be part of it, um, fr from which everything uh, flows and on which everything can be built. And, um, but uh, to do that or to make that uh, suggestion or really assertion, uh, the moderns had to oppose the ancients. And the ancients, uh, and so uh, if you look at Hobbes and Locke, you see that they're constant enemy. It's partly Christianity and the church, but it's uh, even so when they opposed religion, it was because religion was based on, on, uh, on Plato and, and Aristotle or made use of Plato and Aristotle <coughs> because um, Plato and Aristotle showed the importance of the invisible, you could say. Uh, um, the, f the facts are, are what you can see or perhaps even what you can touch facts are in a way unintelligible. They are meant to be uh, things that are understood as things which are in your way. It isn't what you wish, but the fact is, that's the way we use the word fact. But Plato and Aristotle thought that uh, knowledge was not really fact, but knowledge was what was intelligible in a fact. So I give this example. Um, from uh, my father's time at Ohio State, um, or he was on the faculty at Ohio State, and they used to have a joke that made the rounds uh, of the faculty there, uh, which went like this. Question, how many students are there at Ohio State? Answer, about one in a hundred. <laughs> so uh, in other words, the fact that there are 40, 50,000 students right. who are students there because the registrar says they are isn't really a fact if you want to get serious about what a student is. So if you want to get serious about human nature, you wouldn't just be concerned with the imagined fact that we would all be at each other's throats, but you would be looking at... Which uh, is the state of nature. Yeah, the state yeah. of nature. You would be looking at human nature in greater complexity and the fact that we have a, a nobility, a, a, an, ability to, an ability to rise above our situation, to rise above the facts in that brute and stubborn sense of the word. And, and that, I think, is what Plato and Aristotle have in common and what they try to show and what they try to base their politics on. What is aspirational? Nowadays, people speak of what is aspirational, what we want or what we would love to have the future that lies uh, uh, b before us, we hope, things that we hope and change. Say. Uh, so we change because we hope for something better. But uh, modern political science doesn't have any understanding, really, of what it is, what the things are that we would aspire to. And it doesn't have any way of judging among them. And presumably Plato and Aristotle would give guidance as to what we should aspire to, not just that's right. not just before aspiration. That's, that's generally. right. That's I mean, right. They do. They, they do uh, say, say in a, using Tocqueville's distinction, what is democratic about us, what uh, we share with all other human beings, or at least all other citizens in our country, as opposed to what is uh, the reserve of a few. 
which the rest of us don't quite have, but perhaps can understand and even admire. So that's the one that's in a hundred students as opposed the to the 50,000 students. That's the real right. student is the one in a hundred. That's right, that's right. The real student is, uh, and that's from the, a, Aristotelian that's right, from Aristotle's point of view, and that's the real fact of what a, of what a student is. See, rendering questionable the whole modern reliance on facts as brute or stubborn and un unintelligible. No, it isn't unintelligible. Think about it. And then and this is so, uh, Socrates always asked this question, what is? Uh, when you ask what is something, you're looking for a permanent answer, not just what is this pencil and what is that and what is another, but what what is, uh, what is it that makes you call a pencil a pencil? I don't know why I chose that, right. but uh, I did. And <laughs> now I'm stuck with it. Right. And uh, so that- you Choose uh, something else yeah, you'd like. We have, right. you all right. A dog or something. <laughs> yes, no, we, 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 can, uh, we can choose uh, some, some kind of moral quality, whether right. it's like, like justice. That's good. So what is justice? Is it American justice or Iranian justice? Right. Or communist justice? So there are all these different ways in which it appears. And nowadays, uh, the political scientist, as such, throws up his hand, not in despair, because he thinks that he has something as interesting to say, even if he doesn't know that, though he doesn't. <laughs> and um, yeah, so, uh, it's, 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 so what is justice in itself? And that is, what, what is it that makes it intelligible to call all these kinds of justice, justice. So maybe those kinds of justice which you see aren't as complete or perfect as the justice which you can imagine or define in words. And so that's what I mean by the recovery of the invisible, uh, standing behind the visible and necessary to it. This is a kind of formal, but uh, maybe a, a useful way of understanding the difference between the ancients and the moderns, or at least between the uh, Socratic ancients, those uh, like Plato and Aristotle, those that come out of Socrates. There were others, Epicureans and so on, who, who were different, right. because the ancients had their differences too. But still, uh, the Socratic ancients versus the moderns who uh, begin from what is visible and are never able to escape that. But despite being influenced by Strauss and when you had sort of done Burke, you yeah. didn't, at least visibly, go back to the <laughs> ancients. I mean, you taught them, certainly, yeah. and were influenced, studied them. That's you wrote right. some on Aristotle, I, I, I think, even back in the late 60s, early 70s, but your big work was on Machiavelli. That's right. Who didn't actually, wasn't a big yeah. fan of those imaginary republics of the that's right. Ancients, is that right? Well, so, uh, yeah, so why? I'm curious. Yeah, well, uh, maybe having learned this main point, I wanted to see how it applied to us. Uh, a certain division of labor. There were other people who were better at Greek than I was, or, and, and, or still I, or am. And so, uh, um, but... Um, but you also yeah, liked, Mac also, you liked uh, studying Machiavelli, I, I take it, and still do. I still like, yeah, I have a certain... Uh, fascination in his uh, comedy and in his, uh, his, his wonderful uh, um, sarcastic uh, punctu puncturing 
of uh, human pretentiousness. But your years of immersion in Machiavelli and your careful commentaries and translations yeah. didn't persuade you quite to be a Machiavellian? No. Yeah, it's not, I, not, that's right. Uh, that's right. Uh, I'm still a partisan of the imaginary republic. Machiavelli spoke of, uh, of things as they are. And he used a phrase, uh, the effectual truth. You, know, you mustn't be concerned with profession of good. Uh, people who, who think they're good professing good and saying why they are good and other people are bad. Because uh, if you try to be good among people who aren't good, uh, you'll come to ruin. That's a s simple conclusion which he, or declaration which he makes uh, available to you in the 15th chapter of The Prince. And uh, so you must avoid professions of good. An example of a profession of good is working out what it would be good in all cases. So if you were uh, uh, a political person, you would want to work out the best regime. And this best regime would be in your imagination. And he called that an imaginary republic, best example of which is Plato's Republic, which is indeed uh, imaginary because it, it doesn't exist. Uh, so, so that will get you into trouble. An imaginary kingdom, too, you could also think of. That would be St. Augustine's City of God. Uh, now, to follow these imaginary possibilities will make you come to ruin. And therefore, you must uh, look for the effectual truth that is the truth as it comes out. And as it comes out, people who profess to be good often aren't good. Or maybe not often. Maybe they're usually good, or even always good. But when the crucial situation comes, in which everything depends, say, they will tell a lie, or betray a friend, or commit a crime, or do something dishonest. And Machiavelli says, you would too. So that's what I mean by fascinating. And wonderful to read. I think you've, you've, yes, you seem to, to enjoy yeah, interpreting the text, the stories, uh, yeah, the contradictions, and all of that. Yes, yes, yes. All these things uh, um, which we were taught by uh, Leo Strauss's famous book, Thoughts on Machiavelli, my favorite book of his. Yeah. But the deliberate contradictions of Machiavelli, sometimes he'll say one thing and then the opposite thing. And sometimes he'll lie to you, say, there's a rule that uh, never fails. That always means uh, when you read that, it fails. <laughs> and you must look for where it, where it fails. Yeah. So, um, and as you read Machiavelli, you come to a difference between uh, the things that he's advising most people and the things that uh, he is experiencing for himself. He's advising most people to use these Machiavellian tricks to get ahead. These are uh, essentially dirty tricks. Right. Yeah. And if there were a Machiavellian school of public administration, it would be called the Machiavelli School of Scheming Evil <laughs> today. And be a good school. Yeah, it would, be, it would be a good school and much more interesting than uh, <laughs> certain other schools we could name. Right. So. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, uh, so uh, scheming evil. 
and this is his advice. But he who gives the advice is somehow above the advice, and he doesn't always follow it for himself. For himself, he tries to do good to mankind. He, uh, he, he tries to enliven us and to give us something to shoot for, target for our ambition, glory, and uh, a kind of glory, too, that will bring security for most people. Uh, and this as against the depredations and the corruption of the church of his time. So, uh, the, so, so, so his advice to a prince is uh, always anticipate the other fellow and get there ahead of him. And if you think he's going to kill him, you, make sure you kill him first. <coughs> That's anticipation. Right. Well, what that means is that all politics will be a kind <coughs> of uh, a, f a fight. And, and what Machiavelli is doing by advising this and, by, uh, and therefore by standing above it is to say he doesn't really care who wins. Right. So uh, uh, he's not fundamentally, I think, an, an Italian patriot or even a Florentine patriot. patriot. And though you know, he loved Italy and he loved his city, still uh, the reasoning that he gives is, uh, could very well res result in the demise of both. Right. And, and so, but he thinks that it will be good for mankind to, uh, to have a greater supply or greater display of virtue, and that this will come about by following his advice. Therefore, he's a kind of master conspirator, advising everybody else to conspire um, against each other. But he himself uh, sort of uses their, their counteraction for uh, an end which is above them, and that's for the general improvement of mankind. So mankind gets better by learning how to be more successfully evil. Or certainly gets stronger, I guess. So yeah. maybe. And you've not only interpreted Machiavelli, but you've translated him. Uh, yes. Not just The Prince, but much longer works of Machiavelli. Yes, Florentine uh, histories and the discourses, right? Right. So why, why, and you've also translated Tocqueville. Yeah. So people might think that's a little unusual to spend all that time translating texts. Yeah. Do you learn from doing well, it? Well, as a teacher, a you find out just how bad the translations are. They are so unliteral. They depart so far from the original that when teaching them, I found I had to uh, inform the students of the mistranslations that they were dealing with. And so uh, that was one point. Uh, another point is that when you translate something, you become very closely acquainted with the text uh, in a way that otherwise you don't. Uh, you sort of adopt it. Uh, it becomes yours. Machiavelli is your Machiavelli because you, s uh, you see how much uh, uh, yeah, he is uh, so often misinterpreted, or what is often so easily forgotten about him, and um, and, and so it's a way of learning, as well as a way of teaching. Uh, so when I went into uh, <coughs> translating Machiavelli, it was accidentally through a, a proposal of a, a friend of mine, Edward Banfield, and his wife is Italian, and 
His wife had been looking for something to translate, and uh, he said, well, my wife would like to translate Machiavelli, and I said, well, let's do the Florentine histories. That's Machiavelli's uh, longest work, and it's about parties, so that interested me for right. sure. And so we worked our way through that and handed it in to my publisher, um, University of Chicago Press, and uh, they said, well, thanks, but um, uh, this is, we don't think it'll sell. So, uh, and I thought, what will sell is the prints, much shorter. So I did that uh, by myself, and, 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 by, the, and uh, by the time I finished, uh, um, I, well, I did that by myself in order to get the other, the first one published. Right. But by the time I finished, uh, I was enthusiastic, and uh, then turned to uh, doing the Discourses on Livy, which is also a long work which I did with my friend and former student Nathan Tarkoff at, at Chicago, very much enjoying the uh, collaboration with him. And then uh, later on I had a collaboration with uh, my late wife Delva Winthrop in translating uh, Tocqueville's Democracy in America. That was an interesting experience uh, because uh, it was man and wife uh, and we were both worried that it might become a uh, a little bit acerbic yeah. on occasion uh, if we disagreed. And so we, we but, did but it. But knowing right, Delba, yeah. she just yielded Delba. to you no, and, oh, without, yes. any, without any <laughs> uh, objection, yes, yeah, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, that's right. That's what was, you've got her nature exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, so we worked independently and we would write each other notes and, and uh, in order to reduce to a minimum the actual face time of arguing. <laughs> <laughs> so. And anyway, so you know that that was uh, uh, that's been my translation. Um, I think it was uh, Cervantes who said that uh, translating a text is like uh, putting on a, a coat inside out. That you, you know, yeah. it's uh, there are all these threads hanging down, and so it's, uh, it's, it's something which is in its nature imperfect. This goes against a little bit against what I was saying before that you know, that all the translations were I was blaming them for being imperfect. Right. But um, and, and that so the ideal of translation, which would be a one-to-one -one correspondence in Italian and in English or in French and in English, uh, is not one-to-one -one correspondence of yeah, you key terms or all terms, I suppose. That's, really. that's right. right. Yeah, yeah. So that's not really possible. You're dealing in the realm of imperfection. But there's such a thing as uh, perfecting imperfection. Right. <laughs> That's a very modern, a modern. Uh, I assume thing. You, you would still modern, tell students to, yes, yeah. to read the original, of course. And, yes. Uh, yes. Serious of, of course students would learn the relevant languages. Yes. Yeah. 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 Which they still do. It's still necessary. Yeah. Yeah. I think I said once uh, uh, at the end of my uh, introduction to the translation of the Prince, I said. Uh, um, if you don't like this translation, try your own. If you do like it, learn to read Italian. Right. So that, that's, that's translating. It also, translating is also a, um, a tribute to the greatness of the great books. Right. And I don't agree with many philosophers, so-called philosophers, that is people in philosophy departments today, who put on the same level uh, of, you know, a, a philosophy professor of our time, and uh, John Locke or Plato or Aristotle. 
as if these were all, uh, you know, on the on the on the on the level of of themselves. Right. That's a kind of dragging down of the great to the not so great. And when you you teach a, a famous course at Harvard, uh, when I took it, it was called 106 government 106A and 106B, and then there was. Yeah. Course number inflation, and so that's now right. it's government, what, 1060? 1060. 1061, yeah. ancients, right. and then that's modern, right. ancient medievals, yeah. I guess, and modern. Yes. And, and how, I'm just curious over the years, are there some you've grown more fond of, some you've decided to be less? You know, who, who do you really look forward to teaching again or rereading? Oh, you mean the great, again? Of the great, yeah, the great, the great thinkers, thinkers that, I, mean, that I treat in that course? Yeah. 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 By the way, that's, that was, that's a department course. And it isn't my private well, property. Well, that's fair. You yeah. only teach it every it was, other year. It was, and actually, it's uh, the oldest course in our department. It began with uh, with uh, Charles McElwain in the oh, wow. beginning of the twentieth uh, century, and then uh, has a kind of history to it. And I, so I've taught it every other year, and uh, my, my friends, the liberals, take over when I'm not there. And they still teach. And they, similar. They teach it similarly. Though. Yeah. So it's it's still the same course, really. Well, so uh, they have different uh, choices from mine. They do John Stuart Mill. I don't. I've never regretted that. <laughs> but um, I I don't know. I uh, I spend the most time on Machiavelli because he begins it all. Modern political the philosophy. Modern, the right. modern part. This is the modern part that is in the spring term. Uh, and then Hobbes, and then uh, I spend less time on the rest, uh, who are, again, uh, their followers. Um, so you really do believe that, yes, that, do. that argument that Machiavelli foundered modern was thought founder, or even modernity? Was a founder of modernity, yes, uh, I do. And uh, most of it is somehow there in Machiavelli. I and think that's right. I think that's right. Uh, modernity, what is that? Uh, um, Novelty, the love of novelty and the promotion of novelty, the notion that nothing is stable, that you always have to look for uh, what's coming next. Hence, the authority of today. Today we believe this. That's always in contrast to yesterday. We believe something else which was inferior to today. There's a notion of progress there. Uh, the new is good because it brings better. And it's also an, goes against the notion of permanence, or knowledge as permanent knowledge, or knowledge of the eternal. Science consists of the, the current findings of scientists. And so if science becomes more and more a kind of uh, congregation of scientists. It's the agreement of, say, climate scientists right. as to what's happening with our climate. Is it warming or not? Uh, and it isn't uh, the discovery of the intelligible things which are only intelligible because they are permanent and never change. So all this, I think, is uh, is modernity, and uh, you can put it under the word, the three-letter word, new, and that comes from Machiavelli. The new prince is the essential prince. And, uh, a republic must, can only survive by always doing new things.
expanding and reordering itself. Those are the foreign policy imperative and the domestic policy imperative. So newness. So Machiavelli, though only appar apparently only or primarily about politics, is about, well, more, than, that's about right. more than politics. And not about science, because he doesn't mention modern science. Uh, Galileo comes later, and so on. But still, uh, I think he has the, the basic premises of scientific knowledge, as I just tried to explain. And he, he thinks that, um, that when, what is permanent is always, uh, and especially about human beings, is always impermanent. That's a kind of paradox, but right. uh, let him explain that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And of the ancients, who do you look forward to most revisiting each each two year, every two years? Plato, Aristotle. Well, yeah, yeah. Plato has this wonderful attractiveness. Um, everything is so um, present, so immediate. Philosophy is uh, something you can do right now, uh, and. It's concerned with what is the good life, what you should do with your life. This is always very attractive to me as well as to uh, students who are in a period of four years while they're at Harvard or wherever uh, in which they are uh, sort of be just become free of their parents and about before they take on the burdens and the obligations of, uh, of, of careers and marriage and so on. So they're in this wonderful four-year period when, when, in which uh, they're able to think independently and freely, and, and Plato is, can't be improved on for that. Aristotle, however, I like for his wisdom <laughs> and for his, uh, his sensibleness, his concern with and his interpretation of common sense, how he takes the things that we know and shows how valuable they are. We're not simply ignorant. Plato, you, you read Plato and you say, oh, I know nothing. You read Aristotle, oh, I actually know quite a, a good deal. Yeah. They're so, probably not. So they're, they're different in that way and they give you these, this, these alternative uh, sensations of, of, of uh, feeling inferior and full of wonder and feeling uh, quite satisfied and full of wisdom. But maybe they don't, but not fundamentally different not in your Not fundamentally judgment? different, right. no. Different not fundamentally different, view, but, but different uh, ways of presenting the same thing. Whether you want to present philosophy as something uh, inquisitive, inquiring, as a way of life, or whether you want to present philosophy as, a, as the crown of our knowledge and, and, um, and, and what provides all of our premises and foundations. So uh, uh, Plato, you could say, invented dialectic philosophy, and Aristotle invented all these sciences, ethics, politics, economics, physics, physics. These metaphysics. These are all sciences that he invented. And the students, you mentioned them. They've been, you've been teaching them for over yes. 50 years. For I mean, fundamentally years, changed right. or not No, I would say not. Is that yeah. right? Despite everything? Yeah, despite everything. Despite all the changes in composition and, uh, and uh, the, you know, the political changes, even under political correctness, uh, the students, maybe may fewer of them, but they're, uh, they're just as good and just as interested and just as valuable. 
and political correctness is bad because it stifles thought or good because it is so ridiculous that the intelligence students rebel against it. Yeah, well, a friend of mine says that the political correctness is a great gift for comedians. You're right. And you see that <laughs> on TV, South Park, for example. Right. Yeah, but, uh, and, and elsewhere, yeah, but uh, um, yeah, it, it is, it, it's, it's a real devil in, in the universities because it, it, um, it re really does stifle inventive questioning and gives you a false sense of uh, complacent superiority, which is, uh, in, in a profound way, absolutely disgusting to behold. So about seven years ago, in 2006, you published a book, Manliness, that you surely knew would cause a ruckus and be denounced. And why the book? Why, why, why the topic? What? Manliness, I define as uh, taking charge in a risky situation. Uh, there's more to it than that, uh, but there, I think there are some people who are good at that and who reach out for it and whose lives would not be complete without doing it and others who don't and who uh, fear it and rather seek security than risk. So facing risk in a risky situation. And um, I... Um, what I wrote was a modest defense of manliness. Uh, the emphasis on modest, because manliness can be uh, bad as well as good. Uh, not everyone who takes risks <laughs> deserves to have them turn out right. Uh, and um, so, and it, so manliness is, I think, responsible for a lot of evil. You could say that terrorists are manly. They're willing to risk their lives and actually give their lives for uh, a principle they believe in or a point they believe in. And, um, but on the other hand, uh, the, the only way that terrorists can be uh, dealt with is through the manliness of uh, non-terrorists or people who are against terrorism, like the Navy SEALs that killed uh, Osama bin Laden. So, um, in other words, manliness has to be the cure for the evils of manliness. And there is something inevitable about it. There are people who are that way, and there's no getting around that. So either you give them some useful employment uh, and uh, arrange societies so that they have something to be manly about, or you leave it unemployed, which I fear is the situation often today, and uh, their manliness then looks to outlets which are not uh, for the common good. So in a, in a way, uh, this connects to what I was saying about Machiavelli, because Machiavelli thought that his time was <coughs> characterized by what he called uh, ambitious idleness. Right. Uh, in other words, there were uh, a lot of uh, talented uh, Italians or, uh, or people in elsewhere, too, uh, who had no employment and whose talents were not used. And maybe it's more than talent, it's also their spirit, their spiritedness. So manliness is not uh, always a virtue. It's a kind of human quality which can be made into a virtue. 
you can see it at a low level when it's uh, the manliness of a thug or a terrorist, uh, which is simply gut courage. But it's uh, at a higher level when uh, one wants to speak of a gentleman or a lady. Uh, we have to get to the sex difference. Yeah, yeah. a gentleman or, that, or, right. or a lady uh, who, who uh, is refined and um, you know doesn't seek to make a, a, a manly occasion out of everyday events in life, but um, has some control, some moderation, and then uh, to the highest uh, instance of uh, manliness, which is the manliness of a philosopher the willingness to challenge accepted beliefs. And that, and that, that I think, takes uh, a lot of, that takes a lot of guts uh, in the, uh, but, but in, in, a, in a kind of uh, paradoxical sense, because most manly men don't think much about what it is they're defending or the principle that they're actually working for. Principle is not something that's at the forefront of their minds. <laughs> When they're being manly, it's just, uh, in fact, it is, it's almost an instinctive reaction, uh, uh, only habitual at this, maybe at the level of a, of a gentleman, um, but uh, <coughs> usually uh, instinctual and not based on much thinking. And manly men would assume that uh, they have a place in the world. And what their place is, is uh, to make a place for manliness, because manliness as a defense of, or, or as being in charge of risk presupposes, uh, you could say, a, an environment, an atmosphere, a universe even, that is full of risk or is chaotic. So the manly man takes it upon himself to take charge of this whole chaotic mess and to make sense of it. That would be a way in which one could philosophically uh, understand manliness and the requirements of manliness. And so your thought was not simply that we, as a society, don't value manliness enough, but that we don't understand it somehow psychologically as part of human nature? I mean, that was... I think that's right. Now, feminism values manliness. It, it wants, because feminism wants women to take occupations once taken by men, uh, therefore uh, in combat soldiers and politics. These are manly professions uh, traditionally confined to men because they were thought to require um, the courage to face risk and that women uh, didn't have this or didn't have it to the same extent as, as men. So um, the feminists you know, made a kind of manly um, attack on the manly premise that one sex had more of it than the other. And they asserted uh, the equality of, uh, of the sexes pretty much in everything that matters. And you, you, yeah. you, you, you agree with that? And I, I uh, no, <laughs> yeah, I don't really. Uh, I, <laughs> you, you can think of a few things, or many important, actually many important things in which the sexes are the same. But uh, the differences remain, and, um, and it's important to understand and appreciate those differences. 
uh, w women, Aristotle said that women find it easier to be moderate and men find it easier to be courageous. I think that's a, a good way to put it because it shows that each sex has its virtue. And so, and so to say that women aren't as manly as men still leaves them to be more womanly than men, and that's a good thing. And it leaves a few individual women to be manly and yes, a few individual a, a men few, to be That's right. Everybody, everybody knows that there are hard women and soft men, but, but uh, that doesn't, uh, I think, challenge the distinction, which is never perfect or universal in questions of, of human action and human life. Our nature is never such that uh, it completely takes us over and forces us, compels us to be the way that we are. We do have the ability to, to reflect and sometimes to resist our nature. And this is uh, the basis of what you might call uh, human nobility, that we are not satisfied simply with what we are given from nature, but we can rebel against it. And so a woman can rebel against her sort of womanly nature, as we see, is happening, uh, on, 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 because uh, human beings have this flexibility in their nature, and they, uh, and it's, and it's also the case that uh, that a woman can uh, rise to the occasion. I think of the movie High Noon, at Grace. the end of which uh, Grace Kelly, this this, this beautiful Quaker lady, uh, saves her man by shooting. Uh, a man who was about to shoot him. Right. So, uh, d despite her reluctance or her disgust, really, she, she, and, and I think actually w women are perhaps better at doing this than men are. Women are more versatile than men are. That's an advantage, you know. But men are more single-minded than women, which is also an advantage. That's an example of the way I would think about the sex differences. So when I wrote this book, I was attacked by the feminists because I was showing, they thought, uh, which is uh, correctly, that, um, uh, that women aren't as good at doing the things that men do as men are. But uh, I was suggesting, or le at least leaving open, many things, all of them under the, uh, you could say, the umbrella of moderation, of understanding reality. And uh, better than men, and uh, they didn't like this because if you admit that women are better than men in anything, it detracts from their argument that we're equal equal in everything. So they, they would rather uh, accept that they are just as bad as men, and have it equal, than to claim any kind of. Uh, superiority for themselves. And this is the difference between the feminism of our time and of, say, the 19th century. In the 19th century, women claimed the right to vote, the suffragettes. Why? Because if women voted, our corrupt politics would be purified and cleansed, so there, there, there wouldn't be these men with their dirty motives and their selfishness and their corruption, uh, or they wouldn't be so powerful. And polit our politics would, would be morally uplifted by the moral superiority of women. 
but in our time, that's been altogether sacrificed. Right. <laughs> and uh, the feminists are even proud that uh, that the if, if the statistics for women murderers goes up, as, as compared to men, goes up, and that uh, that they're uh, that shows that they're able to to rise above the confines of the traditional patriarchal uh, requirements. But since we're not going to go back, I think you say this in the book, to traditional yeah. patriarchy. Yes. I mean, is it possible at a time that is so committed to equal rights and equal opportunity and sort of gender blind? Um, admissions and, yeah. and job opportunities and treatment of people, which in yeah. a way I don't think you're even against. Yes. Is it possible then to have an honest public discussion of something like manliness? It's very rarely possible to have an honest public discussion of anything, <laughs> but it's especially, especially of this, the way you've defined it, yes, which I think is correct. I, uh, it certainly is. But you thought it, it was important to... Uh, it was important to make the point. Yeah. And I, I think uh, feminism has changed in recent times, or recent, uh, the most recent decades, I would say, the last two, uh, to, to greater recognition of, of sex differences. Uh, it's true that uh, w women uh, want to be treated like women, uh, and, and, the, and they, but they also want to be treated not like women, and they'll take whichever they think is best without fearing too much about consistency, fearing their inconsistency. Right. Well, um, but still, that's very human, and and uh, and they are admitting. I think women are admitting now that uh, beginning to come to to grips with the fact that uh, that they aren't the same as men. You can, isn't there a way of being equal without being the same? And for that, we need to go back to uh, a patriarchal notion of, I might say, a refined or or intelligent patriarchal notion that women have their virtues <laughs> and that uh, it, it isn't that, say, women are emotional and men are intelligent or, right. that, or reasonable. Uh, and I, that, I think, is, is quite wrong and foolish, but that uh, we reason differently just that, isn't the case. So, and, and this is the most important thing, that, uh, that uh, men and women think the same. We have different outlooks. So to have a different body somehow goes with having a different soul. And uh, so, for example, women are more pacifistic. Well, they have children. That's a big investment, nine <coughs> months, nine months of your life for each one of them. So you're not going to go throwing away human life you know, recklessly. Well, maybe that's uh, comical, but still, I mean, right. that, I, I think that's that that kind of thinking is is, is very very common and uh, even wise. There is a kind of wisdom in that uh, sort of, uh, correspondence of roles and, and, and ways of and ways of thinking. And you think this could be the appreciation for the differences could be sustained. In a liberal regime, which is so committed to equality and to some degree to in a yeah. public life, or certainly in law, right. 
to not recognizing the differences. I guess yes. a traditional conservative would say, well, you have to uphold these differences. The legal system somehow has to, yeah. this was the view till what, the 60s or 70s, has this legal yeah. system has to uphold these differences yeah. uh, to sustain them, really. And I yeah. guess the experiment we're now engaged in is, in, is whether, yeah, you can just uphold is whether them. we can uphold the differences legally, but not uh, in fact, or not altogether in fact. Uphold differences in fact so and not legally. That's uh, yes. Uh, uphold right. equality legally. Right, equality legally. Sameness but, but, yeah. legally, I suppose. Right, yeah. So uh, women would have an equal opportunity to be CEO, but will they be satisfied with the fact, which turns out to be somewhat less than 50 50? Right. Or women would uh, legally uh, be permitted to uh, require their husbands to do half the work but uh, they would expect to be disappointed. <laughs> Which, this is, I think, a big point that, uh, in, the, in the debate, who does the housework? Right. Because who does the housework uh, is connected to who runs the household. And not too many women, I think, want to give up the management of the household. They want to be able to say when it's clean and when it isn't. So there was this funny episode on Desperate Housewives once where a couple was exchanging roles and one of them, the man was doing the housework and the woman was, uh, was doing a career job and she came home and the house was always dirty because uh, uh, her husband had a system. Being a man, he decided that there was a systematic way of doing it. And uh, so if you cleaned one room each week, and there were seven rooms, that would only take about 10 or 15 minutes of each day. And the trouble was, however, the house was always dirty. <laughs> so these, the, the, the sort of the manly or the male way of, of, of doing well, it, really. yeah, it doesn't work too well. So a woman looks at this and uh, considers, uh, maybe I, this is something I don't want to uh, let go of. It's good to have a, a slave to do uh, one-third of the toughest and most menial jobs, carrying trash and so on. But uh, for those that require science, like dealing with the children and cooking, I'd better do it myself. That's the woman speaking. That's the woman speaking. Yeah. That's a woman and, speaking. And of you course, think this is... Possible. I mean, this isn't is just nostalgia to, for, yeah. uh, for do, a, do, a long I, ago time. Yeah, I do. This is actually I, I, possible I'm, in twenty first century America. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm putting my bet on the intelligence of women. I, I guess uh, ultimately to uh, to see what is in their interest, as opposed to what their principle seems to re to require of them. Let me ask actually a broader question, following from that, which is um, I said half in jest usually. You know, simply nostalgic, but it does seem to be your writing about America in general and about political philosophy um, is not in the spirit of nostalgia or or yearning for a day that could never come back. In this respect, it's maybe right. more in the spirit of Tocqueville of yeah. looking at the current situation and figuring out what can and can't be done. Is that right. fair? And are you that is fair. feel yeah. that that's the right yes. approach to take? I yes. Mean, and the big, the way to begin taking that approach is to read Tocqueville. Right. He's, you know, that's because he does just what you said. He, uh, he takes things as they are and shows uh, what 
they are as virtues, and sometimes he exaggerates. For example, he has chapters in, on women and democracy right. in America, which give a very idyllic view of, uh, of the harmony between the sexes uh, in the 1830s when, uh, when he came to America. And it, it's probably not quite <coughs> true and, and not meant to be. Right. But you can often give advice in the form of praise. If you praise someone who's very messy and you say, oh my, how clean that suit is, and so, yeah, you know, uh, he might say, gee, it's not very clean. Mm -hmm. I wonder, yes, wonder if he, he was telling me something. So that, that's a nice way sometimes of, uh, or praising a certain policy as having been taken when it hasn't actually been taken, right. but should have been. Right. So you can find virtue in the actual as a way of changing the actual, as a way of reform and uh, not of nostalgia. And you're not particularly, unlike so many conservatives, both in general in the last 10, 20, 30 years, and in yeah. particular in the last few years, you're not wildly pessimistic about I'm not wildly America, pessimistic. the university, right. the culture, right. all these yeah. things. I mean. Yes, uh, I keep hoping and, uh, <laughs> and looking carefully for things that are worth hoping for. Uh, it's true I have uh, greater hopes for America than for the universities. <laughs> <laughs> Can America do without its universities? Well, what about that? Let's talk that. about that. I mean, uh, you've been yeah. such a critic of yeah. Harvard, your beloved Harvard, and of yes. higher education. Yes, and I, how, do. I, I, I do. Mean, I do love Harvard, and uh, and it's uh, very wayward, and it's, it's made itself hard to love. But could the country do well without with universities that are in the state they're in, or could one somehow could intellectual life flourish? Outside and around the universities, I mean, I suppose. Yes, that's I suppose so. I, I know. I know. I I haven't really thought much about that. It did for, <laughs> I mean, for centuries, yes, I, am, I suppose. I have so. tenure after all, so <laughs> it gives gives one a certain complacency and a certain vested interest in in things as they are. But um, maybe we could start to imagine uh, an intellectual life without uh, without universities. Salons, for example. Right. Yes, that would be something um, that women might like to take on. That's good. Yeah, back to the, that's not nostalgic, but it's, it's an old practice which might have new, uh, uh, new advantages, new virtues. So, um, yes, use your imagination and, and include the past in the possibilities of, uh, of, of human improvement. I mean, lots of the great thinkers we admire the most never went to university and or That's right. tutored or That's right. read books or That's right. and they were in, I yeah. guess, the French Enlightenment, yeah. the British set up yeah. Royal Society and the Encyclopédie, right. and that was all uh -huh. to get around, really, the universities of the day, That's I think. Right. That's, right. I mean, That's right. It was. So it was. maybe there are modern equivalents of the that. Universities were the invention of monks, so, right. so, uh, so and somehow they, they were taken over by people who opposed uh, what Thomas Jefferson called monkish superstition. Right. So um, now they're dominated so by a different kind of unmonkish superstition. That's right, by atheistic super, super, uh, superstition, you might say. Yeah, or materialism, the spirit of materialism. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the universities are, are, are fully in, in contradiction with themselves. They're, they regard themselves as the most rational or reasonable part of our society but they themselves uh, depend the least on reason. They attack reason. 
There, uh, if you go to a university uh, psychology professor, he'll tell you that man is not a rational animal. The way to make him act is to nudge him or to appeal to his lower instincts in some way. We're not conscious, or unconscious is much stronger than our conscious. So uh, they, they, they themselves are working against the, the facts of their own existence. And, um, they represent themselves as intelligent while all the time attacking in human intelligence. That, that uh, doesn't make sense, and uh, one hopes that students will, become, will begin to see that contradiction one of these days. <laughs> I think my sense is the students sort of realize they're not getting what they should be getting from colleges and universities. But of course, it's one thing to realize that and to let a lot of it just slough off one's back, and another thing to figure out how to That's get right. an education. That's not so That's easy, right. you know. Yeah, at the end of it, uh, even you go to law school and uh, you see how little that helped you become a good lawyer. Right. Uh, and, and you say that, but you don't. Really try to think how one might avoid that kind of experience. So, um, yeah, I'm, I, again, I I haven't done that thinking myself, and, and but I encourage it, and um, it somehow we still need the institutions which address the few, so which which address the best, and. Uh, or which addressed the best in, a, in an isolated or a situation, like a college, where one can think and, and uh, criticize and learn. So, 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 so altogether to abolish universities and uh, put it all online right. are all uh, in which is a kind of night school all day, all day <laughs> night school, uh, you know, would not be a good idea. The trouble with online education that I've seen so far is that it's too universal. It appeals to too much to the average. But it needn't. I, I mean, it would depend what's it put on. Yes. Couldn't you have a kind of yes. Jeffersonian, you know, it's yeah. available to everyone, I, but if yeah. it's done at a certain level, it's true. if you put the best calculus course online and leave the best math students or advanced trigonometry, whatever that, it would be. That's true. That's Only true. the best students would benefit from it, so it doesn't yeah, have to be. Yeah. I, mean, I think the that, easiest. That works better like, in mathematics, maybe. Than well, in, that's the question. Than could in, you do? Uh, and in sort of questions of politics and morals, where you need to have some debate and, and some questioning and exchange. Right. Dialectic, as Plato said. That's harder that's, to do online. It is. Not impossible, maybe, but. but, but yeah. And of course, plenty of very and smart people have learned a lot that's right. reading books uh, without just, having the that's true. advantage of that's true. being that's in a class true. with ten other kids yeah. the, yeah. uh, over the years, over the yeah. centuries. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, all that is true. Yeah, the the really great intellects are self-taught, obviously, right. and, and and one should always remember that. Tocqueville makes a remark about how, how democracy sets obstacles in the way of great minds. Well. What would Pascal have been if he'd had to get a PhD? Right. Go to graduate school. Or Tocqueville himself, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Learn how to be deferent right. to prof uh, senior professors. Yeah. What not, a horrible Not life. go out at age, yeah. to, to, your, to not go to America at age, what was he, 20, yeah, 25, 25, to write this huge yeah. two volume book because he hasn't, yes. he has to 
yeah. like a narrow thesis topic for his PhD that's thesis. It, yeah. But I guess we're not all yeah. Tocquevilles. That's a problem. That uh, is the problem. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's the answer that the PhD people will give. Right. But, um, and therefore, you, you need some credential. We need professions. Um, professions are composed of experts. Experts uh, go to school. At the end of the school, they get a credential. So you're not an expert without a credential, because somebody has to, you know, certify right. that you're an expert, and that that works in favor of universities, and uh, universities work in favor of it. <laughs> so right. of, the, of of professionalism, you might say, rather than true reflection or or even true learning. It's uh, not not so good for I think a politician to get the uh, get the uh, education of a professional because a politician needs to be above the professions and to be able to question things to turn his mind to um, pivot as we say now right. yes um, you take up a stance and then you pivot because the threat is somewhere so suddenly from your flank or, or, or the rear so Professionals can't do that. Now, they're taught not to do that. Right. They're taught to use rules. So our universities teach rules. That's maybe their great fault.